And it is Easter. Easter is one of those Sundays which get a bit more attention in the church calendar. Just gets a bit more attention. We wear something with a bit more color. Some of you showed up today. I was surprised. You're usually a gray-blue kind of person. We, we ask our children to look a little bit nicer. We demand those around us to just simply be happy because it's Easter. We tend to spend time with family and friends, whether we really want to or not, because this is what people do on Easter. We decorate, we prepare a meal, and of course we hide eggs full of candy and we smile as the grandkids and the kids or the neighborhood kids or whoever's around you finds them and devours the candy. All these things are meaningful and they are absolutely worth your time and energy. These are great things because it's Easter. But the foundation of Easter, the reason why, the reason why we involve ourselves in such things on a day like today is found in the story of an empty tomb, a tomb where Jesus was buried. So maybe you're here and your Easter's have consisted of, we'll call them surface level celebrations, big lunch, Easter egg hunts, a relaxing afternoon, a long nap, all good things, all good things, and all worth your time. But I want, what I'm going to ask of you is that you would open your heart and your mind to what the Bible says about why we celebrate Easter. And I want you to open your heart and your mind to what the Word of God says because I desire for you to, from this Sunday forward, to celebrate Easter in a more meaningful way. You see, the surface level celebrations are great, but they will one day all pass away. The food will be eaten, the candy will be eaten. And the once smiling kids will fall asleep, and then comes Monday. Am I right? Then comes Monday. See, I want you to celebrate Easter all year round. That's what I desire for you. Or maybe you're here and you know of this story, you know of the resurrection story, and you believe in the resurrection, and your Easter's have always been founded upon this truth. That's fantastic. And I will ask you to become a bright light for those living in a dark world. I hope you remember that the resurrection is what makes your salvation possible. Not because of what you've done or how you've earned it, but because Jesus has risen from the dead. It is where our hope is found, and therefore we ought to be telling others about this hope. We should not be ashamed of a risen Savior. Our lives must be marked by helping others to know and to follow Jesus. So if you're a Christian, let me challenge you right off the bat. If you are not helping people meet and follow Jesus, have you met and are you following Jesus? It's a good challenging question for yourself. We must help people meet and follow Jesus. So now let me tell you where we're going. First, we're going to take some time to understand why. The reason why is always important no matter what we do. We're going to take time to understand why the resurrection is such significance. Why is it this important? We're going to walk through the Bible and we're going to read some things that Jesus has said and what other people said about Jesus to help us understand why a risen Savior is so important. And second, we're going to look back at the story that Ken just read to us earlier. And in that story, I hope for us to gain a deeper understanding and a deeper affection for the empty tomb. And also, here's a a little bit of extra. We've been working through what, what is called the Apostles' Creed. We're taking four weeks to go through it. And it's an old ancient confession that summarizes the teachings of the Bible. 
So um, the, 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 the Apostles' Creed was written a long time ago, and it talks about Jesus and God and all the things contained in the Bible. And we come to this phrase in the Apostles' Creed, and it says this, the third day he rose again from the dead. That's what the Christian believes, that there was a man who really lived. His name was Jesus. He was crucified on the cross, but three days later, he was not in the tomb where they buried him. That's what we believe. We believe Jesus is the eternal son of God who is truly God and truly man. We believe he was crucified. We believe that he died and we believe he was buried in a tomb. But we also believe that God raised him from the dead. Amen? So we believe. So let's begin there. Why is the resurrection so important? Or in other words, why is Easter such a big deal? Well, the reason why Easter is such a significant Sunday is because it's the day we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. The discovery of the empty tomb proves, here's, the big, here's the, big, the big idea, here's the main point. The discovery of the empty tomb proves all that Jesus taught and all that he said about you, about me, about people, about our sin, all that he taught about himself, all that he taught about the future and about the past, all that he taught about heaven, all that he taught about hell, and everything in between. An empty tomb proves that all that he said about all of those things is true. Every single word that he said is true. That's why the empty tomb is so significant. For example, when Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a big claim. A risen Jesus proves this to be true. When, John's, uh, when Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A risen Jesus proves this to be true. That's a big claim, is it not? That's an exclusive claim. You know what Jesus is saying? There is no other way to God. Not only is there one God, which is pretty controversial to say, there's only one way to him and one way you will know him, and that is through a relationship with me. You know what he's saying? Everybody else is wrong. Anyone who has showed up, anybody who will show up and says this is the way to God or to an afterlife or to eternity with God is flat out wrong. They're lying. They're demonic. They're leading people away from God. That's a big claim. But you know what? An empty tomb proves this to be true. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, just read that. I'm not going to do that again. Now, we can stop here and you can ask, so why is Jesus saying these things? Why is he calling us to walk into the light? Why do we need to even come to the Father in the first place? It seems as though, as Jesus talks, he's trying to, you know, he's attempting to fix something or to reverse something. Well, then comes this one, John 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Oh, so now it becomes a bit more clear. It's not just about having a relationship with God. There's something about death that we need to escape. A risen Jesus proves this to be true. Let me continue. Here's another one, Luke 13. This, is, this gets a little bit more into our face here. If you do not repent, if you do not walk away from your sin, if you do not turn from your sin and seek your forgiveness, you will perish. That's a paraphrase of part of that chapter. A risen Jesus proves this to be true. Well, now it's a bit more clear, isn't it? Jesus has come to address the sinfulness of mankind. He has come to address the darkness of your heart and of your soul. 
Jesus has come to call us out of his darkness and into his light. But why? Why? Well, because all have sinned and fallen short. Every single person. And I am the worst. So you are welcome here. Because all have sinned and fallen short. Because the wages of sin is death. Because a righteous and just and mighty God will not let sin go unpunished. He will not because he cannot. Because he, does, he always does what is right. You see, we are rebellious towards God and all of his laws. We hate the very God who created us. All of us have gone astray and therefore we are to be held accountable by the righteous judge of the world. So when Jesus says, repent or perish, we better take that seriously. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, we must take that seriously. You see, Jesus has come to deal with your soul and your sin. That's why he came. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, who's lost? We all were. We all are. At one point, we all were lost. He has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to save your soul from eternal death. But he has come so you could be saved. And so you could present yourself before God, not as a sinner any longer, but as a saint, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. He saves you from your sin. He has come to offer you eternal life. Well, the next obvious question is this. Well, how is he able to do that? If that's what needs to happen, then why is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? How is, why is it possible? We're going to look at one more phrase, one more thing that Jesus said. And I think this is the statement that shocked the Jewish religious leaders somewhat the most. Jesus said a lot of things. We could say they were all equally as shocking to those who heard them and to those he said them to. But he says this phrase in John chapter 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Simple, short, it's confusing, but that's what he says. Now let me explain this claim by Jesus because it's really important we understand who he is because that helps us understand why he's saying all the things that he has said about our sin and about salvation. This claim of Jesus where he says, before Abraham was, I am, comes at the end of a long dialogue, a long debate between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. You see, it was common for the Jewish leaders to accuse Jesus of lying because of what he was teaching. They're always asking him questions, trying to trip him up, trying to get him to say the wrong thing. And here's how this goes down. Jesus is in a conversation with them. And Jesus says, hey, if God was your father like you claim he is, if you know God like you claim you do, Y'all would love me and you would receive me. I'm not sure if y'all was in there. That's my word. You would love me and you would receive me. That's what he tells them. But then he says, but you don't. So you know who, you, you know who your father is? The devil. What? Now, some of you aren't shocked because our curse words are way worse today. But that's bad to say someone's father is the devil to the very religious leaders who said they know God and who they were closest to was God. He says, your father is the devil. You're enslaved to your sin. You're murderers and you are wicked. And they reply, dude, you're, you're weird. You got a demon. Something wrong with you. What do you mean we're of our father, the devil? We're from Abraham. We can trace our roots back to that guy. Jesus says again, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus keeps laying it on. You keep my word, you'll never see death. And they reply, now we know you have a demon. 
All right. They double down, right? Now we know you have a demon. Why? Because Abraham died, as did all the prophets that came after him. And yet you, Jesus, stand here and say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They ask him a question. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who died? You, keep, you see how they keep throwing that in there? Jesus, everyone tastes death. Everyone dies. Even Abraham dies. All the prophets, they've died. What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, this is leading up to his phrase. The final response from Jesus. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. That's big. So the Jews said to him, dude, not dude, something else. You're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? That doesn't make sense. Abraham lived way before our time. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, here's the phrase, before Abraham was, I am. The significance of this story is that Jesus places himself alongside Abraham. In fact, he places himself in in history before Abraham. So he has the right to say, if you don't believe in my word, you're going to taste death. But if you do, you'll never taste death. The name I am is the same name God used when he introduced himself to a man named Moses back in the beginning of your Bible. God calls a man named Moses and he says, hey, my people are in Egypt. Go get them, set them free so they can worship me. And Moses says, this is all fine and great, but when I show up to 4 million people, who who can I say that that sent me? Because I'm going to look a little weird. Can you give me some credibility here? He says, tell them the I am sent you. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am, and the same name God used for himself to introduce Moses is the same name Jesus is using for himself. So you see, sure, Jesus said some outrageous things. We've covered some of those things. Outrageous, that is, unless he has the authority to say them. Outrageous, unless he truly is the son of God the eternal son of God, one with the father, one with the spirit, the great I am. And if he is the son of God, then also, he is also the very savior they have been waiting for. He is the very one they've all been waiting for. You know what that means? He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we should seek. And when we seek, we will find. Now I know what you're thinking. That's good. Jesus puts himself alongside Abraham. He's saying that he's eternal word of God. He's saying that he's one with God. He's saying that he's been around from the beginning. And now he's saying that we need to deal with our sin because if we don't, we're gonna perish. But the resurrection of Jesus, just because he's alive, doesn't prove what he said is true. Just because someone comes back from the dead doesn't mean what they said was true. They still could have been a liar. Ah, but wait, there's more. What if all 66 books of your Bible, written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years, all pointed to the person of Jesus Christ? Could someone carry that conspiracy over 1,600 years? I know some of you think it can. I know you guys, YouTubers, conspiracy theorists. But what if all 66 books which are contained in this Bible are about the person of Jesus Christ? Not only about him, but what he would do and what he would accomplish. 
what if the entire Bible was about how the eternal son of God would come into the world, how he would be born of a virgin, how he would suffer a brutal death, die on a cross, but then be raised back to life again? Would that be enough to convince us? Well, now we're on to something. And so what if Jesus himself predicted his own death and resurrection? It's one thing for others to predict it. What did he say about himself? There was a time, about a week before he was crucified, Jesus walks into the Jewish temple. It's this huge, massive temple. It's where the Jewish people would go to worship. They'd buy, they'd sell things. They needed to purchase the sacrifice. They needed to go and kill it. It was like a bloody mess. There was stuff everywhere, money changing hands. People needed to buy a sacrifice. You could buy a turtle dove, a pigeon, a goat, all these things. But what had happened in the day is that the temple turned into an economy. It 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 was all for money. The money changers were there. People were just selling and making money. It wasn't about the religious duty anymore. It wasn't about the sacrifice given to God. It was only for their financial gain. They had ruined it. They had perverted what God had given them. So Jesus walks into the temple. He makes a quarter whips. He starts driving people out. He turns over the tables, throws stuff around, and he says, this is not what this temple is supposed to be used for. You guys have got it all wrong. So people approach him. John chapter 2, and they say, what sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus, what gives you the right to come to the temple and tell everybody they're wrong and throw over our tables and hit me with a stick? What's up with that? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's a shocking statement. And so Jesus responds. Oh, the Jews responded to him. Hey, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. 46 years. You're not going to destroy it and build it in three days. It took 46 years. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What more would it take for you to believe a man who taught with the authority of God who healed by the power of God and who predicted his own death and resurrection, what more would it take you to believe in him for life? To drop everything and follow him. To actually say, I believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. To actually believe if we do not repent, we will perish. These are all things that Jesus said. Now I could walk us through maybe a few hundred prophecies of of things predicted of who the Savior would be, where he'd be born, how he would suffer, how he would die, how he would rise. But for the sake of time, and to make sure you guys are still my friends after this, we're just going to focus on a short story and not go through all those things. We're going to focus on the story in Luke 23. All right, so we're going to look at three different movements of the scripture that Ken read to us. So now we know why the tomb is so significant. Because if there is an empty tomb, a historical documented event of an empty tomb, then everything Jesus said about himself is true. We have to do something with that claim. So first, let's go back to the story. Let's meet a man named Joseph, the man who paid for Jesus' tomb. Luke 23 records, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and their action. Joseph did not want to go along with what the religious leaders wanted to do, which was crucify Jesus. 
He did not consent to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, that's the Roman governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to their commandment. Now, it may seem that this man, Joseph, who gives Jesus his tomb, is insignificant in the story. Maybe just, you know, historical filler to take up some space. But he's not. Because what this paragraph is describing is the burial of Jesus, and it describes an important truth. It reveals an important truth. And that is this, that the Bible is an accurate historical account of what has really happened. It really happened. It's a collection of books riddled with fulfilled prophecy, and they're all about one person. Let me encourage you, Christian, because I know we need it each and every day. The Christian is not a wishful thinker. The Christian is not someone taking a blind leap of faith. Those who read and believe what is written in the Bible are not hoping this book to be true. They know it's true. Because the Spirit of God has revealed the truth to them. They know it's true. Now there's an objection to this. We say, I believe in the Bible. It's strange. It's an old book. It's ancient. I don't understand it. It's got words in it I don't like to read. I don't know what to do with it half the time. There's a lot of evil in it. There's a lot of pain in there. I can see that. And it's just not for me. But you see, a simple reading of the Bible will lead us to realize this is no ordinary collection of books as we described earlier. There is nothing else like it. We believe this to be the revealed word of God. We believe God communicated with us through this word. Peter, the guy before Jesus died, this is the guy who betrayed Jesus three times and Jesus told him he would do it and that he did it. Here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, listen, we, don't make, we didn't make this stuff up. It's not like we needed something else to do. We weren't that bored. We didn't invent Jesus. We did not cleverly create a religion. Look, we were living our Jewish life, waiting for our Jewish Savior, and he showed up, and we were eyewitnesses to the entire thing. So there's just another thing yet to consider. Well, do we believe what Peter says? I'm not with Jesus yet, but what about Peter? Peter says, I saw the whole thing. Could it be that the God of all creation spoke to us through the authors of these books? Yes. Could it be that Jesus is the one whom the whole Bible points to? Yes. Could it be that Jesus is the object of every author and of every book of this collection called the Bible? Yes. And could it also be that it is here and you are here because God wants you to know and understand this word? Absolutely. Joseph is not an insignificant part of the story. And many years before Joseph shows up, there's a man named Isaiah who says, the suffering servant, that's the name given to Jesus, will be buried in a rich man's tomb. That comes true just like that. 
Joseph is wealthy, and he's got a tomb for Jesus to lay in. Joseph is part of the story. Second, who are tombs for? What are tombs for? They're for dead people. And so that means there's much to consider in what the angels say to Mary, Martha, and Joanna in Luke 24. I'll read it for you. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, I would say that's an understatement. He was there. Now he's not. Something's happening. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Um, Because that's what tombs are for, I guess. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he had told you while you were still in Galilee? Isn't that great? Remember what Jesus said to you guys? This is what he said, that the son of man, referring to himself, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered these words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Isn't that phrase amazing? Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is all part of God's plan. Don't you remember? He's not supposed to be here. Weird, right? I mean, the women travel to the tomb because that's where dead people go. They go into tombs. No one would go to a graveyard to search for someone who's alive. And that's the exact point the angels are trying to make. Remember the plan of God. Remember what everybody has been talking about. Remember that this is happening right before your eyes. And see, what the angels are doing is they're announcing the faithfulness of God. God had been saying it to, for years to his people. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send someone. He'll reverse the sting of death. He will cleanse you from your sin. He will make you right with me again. I'm going to send. I'm going to send. I'm going to send someone. The angels are announcing the faithfulness of God. These angels have revealed the plan of God. God has accomplished what he said he would accomplish. Jesus is not simply a leader for one generation. This means Jesus was not simply a leader for those people who saw him. He's not just a simple, famous character in history. Jesus is a leader for all generations. He's not a temporary king for those current Jewish people he lived with, but he is the king who would rule over everyone. He's an everlasting king because the tomb could not hold him. So God puts his stamp of approval on the plan for all the world to see. And the angels announce it. Don't you guys remember? This is what God's been talking about from the get-go. This is God's plan to save his people. These angels continue by reminding the women, just as Jesus had told you, just as Jesus had told you, just another phrase of Jesus. And we have to figure out what we're going to do with it. The son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Oh, and be crucified and on the third day rise. We believe Jesus is who he said he was. We believe everything he said is true. We believe he is the son of God. We believe this because death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him. Third, we learn why people should be talking about Jesus so much. 
we're now understanding why you get so excited about talking about Jesus. Some of you guys finally understand why I get so excited about talking about Jesus. And I want you to understand how you must be more excited to talk about Jesus. And here's why. Here's the third thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes the forgiveness of sin, the deliverance of death, and life everlasting. That's it right there. That's why we must get excited about Jesus. Last three verses in this story. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Always know that women are right. But these words, most of the time. That's one's for my wife. I'm not looking up to see her though. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Okay? They didn't believe him. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Marveling. The faithfulness of these women caused Peter to run and see for himself. It's a big claim, girls. Look, we love y'all. You're great. You're family. Are you okay? Tombs are for dead people. They don't leave them because they're, you know, dead. The faithfulness of these women caused Peter to run and see for himself. And I believe, I think he went home marveling because the empty tomb had validated what he had believed about Jesus. Peter lived an interesting life. If you read about him through the Bible, there was times that he said the wrong thing and did the wrong thing and doubted, but then believed again. And he betrayed Jesus three times as they were arresting him. I think Peter is marveling because he realizes, wow, I had just been with the Son of God. I was with him. I lived with him. I walked with him. I talked with him. He taught me. I saw the miracles. I heard the authority of the word of God preached through his mouth. And there's this time in the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's the guy who records the life and time of Jesus. And it's in the 16th chapter that he writes this story. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is before his arrest, before his death. Jesus is walking and teaching and healing and doing miracles. He enters into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, those who are following him, Jesus says, who do people say that the son of man is? Who do, who do people say the savior is going to be? Who should we be looking for? Who is the son of man, the long promised Messiah that God said is coming? Who do people say he is? And they answer, well, some say he's John the Baptist, right? That's Jesus's crazy cousin, right? Eats honey, eats bugs. He comes out of the wilderness telling people to repent. That's that guy. Some say he's John the Baptist. We should be waiting for him. Others say it's Elijah. That's an old prophet too. And others still say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Like we should be waiting for one of them. That's who the son of man is going to be. They're going to come back and they're going to save us. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I like that. First, he asks about the Son of Man, wondering if he'll make, they'll make the connection that he's the Son of Man. But then he says, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior, the Son of the one true living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, who had to run and see for himself, went home marveling because God had just validated what he believed to be true about the person of Jesus Christ. 
So if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Savior, and if he is the Son of the living God, then yes, he is absolutely the only one who can forgive sin. He is the only one who has the power and the authority to reverse the curse of death. And he is the only one, he is the only one which gives anyone a promise of an afterlife. He is the only one who will give everlasting life for all who believe. Throughout the Bible, Jesus challenges people. Challenges me, challenges you. He challenges people he interacts with. To not simply write him off as just another popular person. He's not a popular figurehead of a religion. He's not a person in history that we need to admire. Or go to worship on Easter. I'm glad you're here. So glad you're here. But over and over again, Jesus presents himself as the one God had sent to reverse the curse of death and remove the sting of death, thereby offering everyone eternal life. Friends, you were not created to die. And we know it and we feel it, which is why we will do anything to outrun it. We'll keep busy. We'll fill our lives with things that don't matter because we just don't know what to do about death. I tell you this in all sincerity and love. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for all who believe. It is absolutely good news for all who believe. But here, here's the part I need you to remember. I love you, okay? And maybe you don't know me yet, but if you know my friends, I'm a loving person. Just ask them, okay? The resurrection is good news for those who believe. But it's really bad news for those who do not believe. That's what we need to come to terms with this morning. See, it's not like, well, I can take it or leave it. Jesus never positions himself as that. It's never uh, believe halfway, but just do what you want. It's okay. Jesus never says those things. It is fantastic news for those who believe. No more sin, no more death, everlasting life. But for those who do not believe will meet their judgment because every sin demands a payment because God is good and he is just and he always does what is right, which means the sin, the death, the destruction, the darkness, the evil that we see in this world will be judged. It will be judged. It's good news for those who believe because it is the only those who believe in Jesus who he is and what he has done for them, only those people will be forgiven. And now you look at me and you say, well, that's quite arrogant. <laughs> John, there's a lot going on in the world. I'm in a church. I mean, I know what you're thinking, right? Church isn't even that big. Guys aren't even that important. I mean, you don't even have a parking lot. <laughs> I see what you're doing, right? You're like, hold on a minute. You just told me if I don't believe that I'm going to be judged by God, what kind of place is this? You know how your mind spirals? <laughs> he doesn't even look that nice. You know, I can't believe I'm even here. I regret this whole decision. I get what's happening. I do it all the time. That friend who invited me, never talking to them again, suckered me into something. Let me be very clear to you. Any person who is a Christian in this room today did not earn to be saved. You don't deserve it. You did nothing for God to smile down upon you. You weren't nice, you, know, you didn't look nicer than everybody else. You didn't have a certain level of education. You did not have a clean life. You didn't live a perfect life. In fact, some of y'all are really wicked, right? Get to know me. I'm way worse than you. And some of you had to have some wicked stuff done to them. That is true. 
But you know what the Bible says about salvation? No one earns it. God gives it. That's it. And for all who believe, over and over again, belief and faith and active belief and just trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, that he does forgive sin, he does reverse the sting of death, and he does offer everlasting life, that is the ticket to salvation. See, even if you came to me and said, what do I need to do to be saved? I would tell you what everybody else in the Bible says, believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. So you see, it's not so arrogant now, is it? Because I'm just saying what God said. Gotcha. So now we see as we begin to close, and they mock me when I say that here, I am closing very soon. There's four stages as I begin to close. I'm just joking. What the Bible has done throughout this morning is this. It has instructed the mind. It has taught us something true about God. It's instructed our mind. I've been praying all week that this sermon would convict the heart as well. I do pray we are convicted. We should always be convicted. If we don't understand who we are and who God is, we never mature, we never move forward in life. Our mind has been instructed. I pray our hearts have been convicted. And now, I want to call your will. I want to call you to faith and repentance. Based on what the word of God says, you no longer can stay neutral or lukewarm towards this person of Jesus Christ, towards this guy who walked out of the tomb. All of us must either confess that he is the savior and find our life in him, or you must confess that he is a criminal. He's either the Christ or he's a criminal. Why? Because he hung on a cross like a criminal. So he either deserved to be on that cross because he did something wrong, or he's fulfilling the eternal plan of God to come and seek and save those who are lost. One or the other, that's it. So you leave here this morning and you celebrate your hearts out, I hope you do but you're either celebrating Jesus as a criminal, something we can just shrug off and leave alone, or he's the Christ, the only one who can bring us back to God. So let me call the verdict here with you. You don't have to answer out loud. That would be weird. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Do you believe? Friends, don't get it complicated. The Bible doesn't complicate it. We're the ones that mess it up. Do you believe in what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? And if you do, you're saved. Your sin has been forgiven. You have been cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell your life, so now you're the temple of God, right? Isn't that great? Our God doesn't live in some temple we have to go visit. He's not in some statue we have to bow down to. The Holy Spirit indwells our lives. And that Holy Spirit secures your eternal salvation. So do you believe? That's what I ask of you this morning. As we close here, I just want to tell you, I'm going to give you a few moments to think about that and pray about that, and then I'm going to help you maybe respond to that question. But to give you some ways you can do that. Here's why. Because at this church, we have an aim and we have a goal. It's simply to put Jesus before you and pray like crazy that God reveals it to you. That's our goal. We keep it real simple here. We, take it, we talk about the same message over and over and over again. To everyone up here and all the little kids downstairs, each and every week, we talk about one thing. That is the saving power of Jesus Christ. 
So I don't want you to leave this Easter morning the same that when you walked in. Every time we open up this Bible, it begs us to respond in some way. We either receive God's forgiveness or we simply turn and go our own way. But I've prayed all week that those who are here would believe upon the name Jesus Christ. Amen.